If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash themurderinmyfamily. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. Please allow me a moment to share some important information before we get started. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review it wherever you listen to podcasts so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderinmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderinmyfam or by searching for the Murder in My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show via Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Murder in My Family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include such things as early, commercial-free access to new episodes of the show, plus bonus material not heard in regular episodes, and may include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I give shout outs to any new supporters. Thank you to all the supporters that generously donate and keep the podcast going and improving. Thank you. And now on with the show. In the last episode of the murder of my family, we discussed the case of a mother who was murdered and taken away from her young son. In this episode, we discuss the case of a young daughter who was murdered and taken away from her mother. This is an especially difficult episode for me personally, and it may be for you as well, as we'll be discussing the death of a baby girl named Caitlin Gonzalez Hamilton, who was just two and a half months old when she was murdered. I chose this case for the last episode of 2018 because going into the new year, I wanted to remember how awful this world and some people in it can be. I wanted to use that knowledge to remind myself to be the best person I can be in 2019. To do my small part to try and make this world a better place. And help offset, in some little way, some of the terrible negative things that happen. One thing I've realized through the first 21 episodes of this show is that the stories that are the hardest to discuss are the ones that might need to be discussed the most. We owe it to the Caitlins of the world to not forget what happened to them, but instead to learn from them and try and do things to protect them and to keep them safe. I've given this warning before. If this episode or this case is too hard for you to listen to and you need to turn it off, I understand. No hard feelings. But if you do listen to this entire episode and at the end you're sad or outraged, do something positive with that emotion. Make a difference in whatever small way you can. Perhaps you can get involved in an organization that helps protect children, or maybe make a donation to one. In the United States, more than four children die from child abuse or neglect 
every single day. Over 70% of these children are under three years old, and Caitlin Gonzalez was just one of these children. And this is her story. On February 23, 2003, Caitlin Gonzalez Hamilton was born in Lancaster, California. Her mother, Jessica, was only 19 and already had a young child, a daughter named Mary. Jessica was excited to welcome a second little girl into the world, although Jessica knew that it wasn't going to be an easy path for her. When Jessica was six months pregnant, the relationship between her and Caitlin's father, William, ended. But despite the challenge of raising two young children on her own, Jessica knew that it was a challenge she could handle. She had her own place and a job, and on top of that, she was finishing her senior year of high school in order to attend college. Despite the breakup with Caitlin's father, William, he was still in the picture and helped to care for his daughter by watching her when Jessica had to work or go to school. Jessica kept busy juggling motherhood, work, and school. It took up just about all of her time. But at the same time, she also wanted to be able to find time to date. That's when a friend of hers introduced her to an 18-year-old man named Kyle Lawson. It turned out that Jessica's ex, William, knew Kyle pretty well and seemed to approve of him, which eased Jessica's mind a bit, and Jessica and Kyle began dating. On Monday night, May 5, 2003, Kyle stayed over at Jessica's. The next morning, on Tuesday, May 6th, Jessica had to leave early for a WIC appointment. Both of her young daughters were asleep, and knowing that she'd only be gone a little while, Jessica asked Kyle if he would watch the girls until she got back. She knew that she'd only be a mile away, and she'd be gone an hour, if that. Kyle agreed to watch the girls, and at around 9.30 a.m., Jessica left to go to her appointment, thinking that she'd be back by 10.30 and most likely would arrive home to find her daughter still in bed or just waking up. Leaving Caitlin with Kyle Lawson would be a decision that Jessica would regret for the rest of her life. At 10.15 that morning, police received a phone call from Kyle Lawson. Two-and-a-half-month-old Caitlin had slipped out of his hands and was badly hurt. Police and paramedics raced to Jessica's apartment and found little Caitlin unconscious. As paramedics worked on the baby girl, Kyle told police that Jessica was at her appointment a mile away, and they sent a police officer to pick her up and to let her know what happened to Caitlin. Jessica was devastated and shaken by the news of what happened to Caitlin, and she went back with police to her apartment. But once she got there, police wouldn't allow Jessica to see Caitlin, and all Jessica could do was wonder what was going on. Caitlin was rushed to the hospital, and Jessica met her family and Caitlin's father, William, there. Police and hospital staff knew that the injuries Caitlin suffered were not due to a simple fall. She had visible bruising, cuts, and knuckle prints on her skin, and her skull was shattered. As doctors tried to explain the severity of the injuries that Caitlin had suffered, Jessica struggled to make sense of it all. Finally, the reality set in for Jessica of how dire things were. Two-and-a-half-month-old Caitlin had no brain activity and was on life support. As Jessica and her family were left to deal with an unimaginable situation, Jessica made the gut-wrenching decision to turn off life support, and Caitlin died later the same day, at two and a half months old. Police continued to question Kyle Lawson, but Kyle wasn't admitting or owning up to anything. Only now, they had murder on their hands. They didn't buy the story that baby Caitlin had fallen a short distance onto a carpeted floor and received the injuries that she had. Despite not confessing to beating Caitlin to death, police arrested Kyle Lawson for her murder. Baby Caitlin was laid to rest, and a headstone marks her grave. 
part of it reads, Walk softly. An angel lies here. Kyle Lawson was charged with second-degree murder. And rather than take his chances in a trial, he took a plea deal and was sentenced to 15 years to life for the savage and brutal beating death of two-and-a-half-month-old Caitlin. I don't know how it's feasible that there was any possibility that Kyle Lawson could walk out of prison only 15 years after doing something like this to a baby. As much as we see good things happen within the justice system, I always feel like in these kinds of instances, the murders of children, that the punishment should be more severe. But that's a discussion for another day. In the meantime, Caitlin's mother Jessica joins me to discuss Caitlin's heartbreaking story next. Jessica, thanks so much for joining me today to discuss your daughter Caitlin's case. Thank you. Thank you for letting me talk about her case. I really want her story heard. Um, It's been a journey and a continuous battle to keep having justice for her. It's difficult, you know, when I was reading the material for this and, and looking into the case, Caitlin is the youngest victim I've ever discussed on the show at two and a half months, which is just a sin. As a parent myself, Caitlin's murder is so very appalling and senseless. I can't even imagine what that was like for you personally. It was, um, I was such a, I was 19 when it happened, so I was very young and I didn't, it was hard to fathom and understand the whole entire thing because at that, at that age, I was concentrating on work. I had my own place. I was going to school and I had my two children. Yes, it wasn't ideal to be 19 with two children, but I made it work and I was, you know, working and I just had everything um, going on at that point. And at 19, you don't, well, any young age, you don't really see the world as evil or anything like that. You're very resilient to that stuff. And back then we didn't have social media, so we didn't hear anything about stuff going on around the world. And so, so then I was very in a happy place and um, doing what I could do um, for my children and keeping my education going and working and um, taking care of my own place and stuff. So, uh, and it just seemed that day on May 6, 2003, it's everything came crashing down. And it was um, when the hospital staff was telling me, you know, about her injuries and everything at that point, it was, it became too much to handle. So you, it sounds like you had your stuff together and you were providing for your children and you had a future ahead of you and you were doing the right stuff that you needed to do as a parent. Yes. Yes. It's just, you never know. And now I know this, that you never know how people truly are. And, Sometimes you don't know their true intentions until it's too late. And you, you've you been robbed for the last 15 years of having a life with with Caitlin. How hard has that been for you to, to deal with for the last 15 years? It's been really, really hard. Um, 
when her murderer pleaded guilty, we just, he, he took a plea deal. So we didn't even get like the full, what happened, like why until the last parole hearing, which was a year and a half ago. And now I have to go again. He, he, he got an early uh, parole hearing. Um, he got a three year denial last time and now it, he got an earlier advancement. So we have to go, um, next week again. Um, last parole hearing, we actually, for the first time, got to hear all the horrid details on what exactly happened that day. And I feel like the last 15 years, everything I thought, um, because it was still horrible, um, but I think for the last year and a half, after hearing how it was way more than what we could ever imagine, my family and I have really had a hard time struggling with this. It's it's been like a wound that will never close and it just progressively gets worse. So what you imagine happened, it was even worse than that. Yes. And and Um, it's, it's just scary to think that he could do that to a two and a half month old child and, there'd be a possibility that he could walk out of prison in 15 years. It just makes me scratch my head. Yes. Um, mine too. And my fear is, you know, I don't want this person to get out. I mean, he had a psych, a psychiatrist evaluate him before the last hearing. And they said he was still very manipulative and, um, they've caught him in many different lies. And it's just, I don't know if it's just the California state that they like to push these inmates out, but that's my fear because of the overcrowdedness in the prison systems. I feel like that they might push him out on the streets. And my fear is that another mother would have to go through this because I would never want any other mother or child to have to go through anything that my daughter had to experience or myself. It's something that I would never wish on my worst enemy ever. Normally I like to ask my guest to share with listeners what kind of person their family member was. And I can only imagine for you that you never got a chance to get to really know Caitlin in that very short time and see what she might turn into. And that being said, do you have any fond memories of Caitlin from the short time? that she was in your life? Yes. Um, she loved her swing, her baby swing, and she had really beautiful green eyes. Um, so every time she was swinging the swing, she would always look at the little mobile and like have a little smile, but her eyes would get so bright from looking. She was very interested in that mobile that would spin around um, with the little toy animals on it and like, that is one of my best memories because she was just so, um, so content and happy. And, and when I held her, um, just looking down at her, even when she's awake or sleeping or crying, it was just those memories I cherish so much. <clears throat> And you didn't get the chance to see her grow up or go to school or 
grow into a teenager and, and experience the things that you should have experienced with her, which is just, that's gut wrenching. Yeah. I never get, I never got to, um, see, get her ready for school dances or, um, her first date or, you know, buying her first set of makeup, um, taking her to do sibling things with her other siblings. Uh, no, that the only thing I could do now to care for her is to keep her memory alive. And when I go visit her at her gravesite to clean it and remove any debris off of it. And like, I feel like that's, that's all I have left. You're in, a, in an extra hard position because this wasn't a stranger that did this. That was this was somebody that you knew well, or you thought you knew. I should say. Had you ever seen any kind of violence or anything in his past that might make you think that he could do something like this? No, and actually, um, Caitlin's uh, Caitlin's father he left. Um, me when I was like six months pregnant. I mean, we were all young, so it was really uh, a toll on him. And um, at that point, I was just like, okay, I'm just going to handle my stuff and keep working. And I met um, Kyle. That's the one who um, murdered my child. Um, I met him through mutual friends. And actually, Caitlin's father like grew up with him, and they played football and um, when Kyle started asking me out on dates and stuff, I actually went to Caitlin's father, William, and asked him about Kyle. I was like, you know, I don't know him. How well do you know him? And um, everybody that knew him, they they could never fathom that he would do something like this. It was very, um, very devastating to everyone involved, um, my family, his family, Caitlin's father's family, and Caitlin's father actually felt really horrible because he was the one that gave the go-ahead, oh, yeah, he's a great person, like, we grew up together. It was a big shock to the whole community, and it's still hard for some people in that small community to, they still have a hard time dealing with it and a hard time believing that it actually happened the way it did. And I still, I mean, I don't get harassed per se, but I do get emails or messages from his family um, begging me to not fight it, to not keep him in there, because the, I think in their in their own minds, they, they still have a hard time believing it. And the fact that it happened so quickly, um, that day I was, I had to go to a WIC appointment and um, I was, it was so early in the morning when the kids were sleeping and Kyle had stayed the night that night. And I asked him, I was like, Hey, I'm just going to go. It, it, it's less than an hour usually. And it's a mile down the road and you know, there shouldn't be no problems. Caitlin's grandmother lived right um, in the same, well, her dad's mom lived right in the same complex area and I said if there's any emergencies you know but I wouldn't even take that long they would probably still be maybe just getting up by the time I was coming back and um I want to say I left at nine 
I left at 9.30 a.m., and the first uh, 911 call came at 10.15. That's how fast that this whole incident happened. And I just can't understand it, um, what happened within that short amount of time that would make him hurt my child in so many different ways. It wasn't just one type of way that he murdered. It was multiple different things that he did that caused her death. What did he say at the time when, I guess, first of all, was he the one that called 911? Yes, he actually, he ended up, I guess, calling his, what the police told me, he ended up calling his grandmother first and said that my baby was unconscious. I can't remember exactly what he told his grandmother, but I know it was that part. And she told him, you need to call 911. And I guess when he called 911 and when the police came, I know that he told the police that he just dropped her which didn't make sense of her injuries because I lived on the second floor and it's carpeted. And where he said that where he dropped her was only not that far from the ground. So she had multiple skull fractures. She had bruising um, that had knuckle prints on it. And um, and I think there was other marks. I, I can't remember off the top of my head right now. Um, I think it was other bruising, like in the forehead area. None of it, the police knew right away um, that his story didn't sound right. At this point in time, while he's explaining this, um, the police actually picked me up from my uh, WIC appointment and told me that my child was unconscious, I need to get in the car. At this time, I was like wondering like what I was um, basically I drew a blink like I didn't understand what was going on once I got there they would not let me upstairs in my apartment um, they and they called Will's father he came home back from work because he lived very close by as well I guess they told him a little bit more than what they told me because they uh, they wanted me to get more information I guess they wanted the hospital to tell me I think that's I don't know why they told him more than what they told me, but um, probably the emotional factor of it. Um, but when I got into the car, we drove to the hospital, and then that's where the hospital staff, they put me they put me and my family in a little room, and then that's when they explained all her injuries, and um, they explained uh, that... There was no way that this was accidental, and they tried to do it with as much care and comfort as they could. I still, at that time, was really confused. I almost felt like a little child. All the adults were talking, and I didn't understand. Um, a, a lot of bits and pieces were very blurry at that time. I think I either blocked a lot of it out, because I only remember certain things, but it took a little while to, they actually had to sit me down and um, tell me in a more simpler way so where I could understand because she was on life support but she had zero brain activity and um, they were trying to 
you know, tell me what decisions I've ha- had to make or have to make and stuff like that. Still, it was very an experience that, you know, I never um, imagined would ever be happening to me. And it was, I was in shock for a lot of it. Did they arrest him immediately because they suspected he had done this on purpose? What they did is they they wanted to get him to confess. So they did initially arrest him. And then, um, I don't know, I think they, I don't know what the reason was. They let him out and then rearrested him the next day. But they had me, the police had me call him to see if I could get him to tell me exactly what happened. I barely remember that conversation. Uh, I was at the police station when I called and they did, they um, listened in and everything. And he basically kept just apologizing. He wouldn't say anything else. He wouldn't say, he wouldn't say I didn't do it or did do it. He would just keep apologizing. And um at that point, I, I know I ended the conversation because it was too hard and I just started crying and I had to hang up and they, they, they understood that I just couldn't, I couldn't listen to his voice and listen to any excuses. I just, I couldn't do it. It was, it was very, very, very hard for me. And even though he didn't admit to doing it, you knew in your heart that he had done it on purpose? At that point in time, I was still very, very in shock and very confused. It took me a little bit to understand. Because at that point, I couldn't imagine how anybody could hurt another human being. I was very still, still in my innocent stage, kind of, where I'd never seen the bad, bad in people. Um, so I had a really hard time understanding why. And I think that was my most biggest thing, is I, Why? I still, to this day, even though the last parole hearing, that's when everything came out, The where he told the whole events of that morning and what led up to and everything, but it's still in my head. His reasoning why still doesn't make sense to me, because last time he did say why, but that still doesn't, maybe because no amount of reasoning could ever, to me, would ever makes sense on why would somebody would do that to another human being, especially somebody as innocent and little and defenseless as Caitlin. Yeah. It's, it's appalling to, to think that he beat her to death. How much time went by before he was arrested? Um, I think it was like within two days. Uh, it was very quick where he was arrested. It was very quick. I think it was the first day they they brought him in, and I think they questioned him. Or I wasn't sure. I was still dealing with the whole everything. Um, so I really want to say it was like either the second day or maybe even the first thing in the morning, the, the third day. But it, it was within the, the first few days. It wasn't that long. I think they were still doing like the whole investigation process and doing certain procedures, standard procedures. I know that they did take a lot of evidence. Like they cut out a square of the carpet where he said he did drop her and they had to test that for anything. I think they were just trying to 
that original story that he came up with, I think they were trying to get that out the window. Basically, get enough evidence to show this story isn't doesn't add up. And I think that's what they were doing. Um, wasn't sure exactly everything. I know my mom remembers a lot of that. She was the one that dealt with the police more than I, I was because I was just too too torn up. I couldn't even go back to my apartment for, I, th- I think it was like a month, month and a half. I wouldn't go back. I stayed at my parents' house. I was just too, too devastated. I couldn't. Um, go back and see all the baby's things and see Caitlin's swing and all that. So uh, it, it took a long time for me to be able to go back and face all of that. And so at the time, he wound up taking a plea deal and admitted that he was responsible. But even still, he didn't give all the details until recently when he's trying to get out of prison. Is that correct? Yes. Um, during the sentencing, they gave him a chance to talk. And he all he said was that he was sorry for everything he put me and my family through and that he doesn't want us to endure any more pain. And he pled guilty. It was very short of what he, he, his statement was very short. And to the point, it was not detailed. It was just a um, very vague apology. And and I know it's a, a tough thing to, to think about, but in, in that 15 years, have you had any kind of forgiveness for him? I tried. Um, I tried to think that maybe he just couldn't handle um, her crying, maybe... Like in my head, I just kept trying to, trying to help my, it was basically me trying to help myself be able to move on and stop with the questions on why and what happened that day. I'd never knew for so long. Um, and I just couldn't, I, I couldn't come to um, an agreement with myself to basically to forgive him and everything. And then especially after the last parole hearing, there is, there's no way that I could forgive. There is, the details were just too much, way too much. And um, people have asked me, well, maybe he just said that to admit, you know, that he did do it so he could get out. And I'm like, no way. If somebody was, there was too many horror details and too many different ways of how he harmed her. Um, and they all just matched up to everything the coroner said. Everything. It, that's when everything started making sense on um, her injuries, the amount of her injuries, the extents of uh, everything. Just, it all started to make sense. But it was still kind of like, how could anybody ever do that? He also stated um, during the last parole hearing, she looked up at him during this time of, of during the beating that she was looking into his eyes, and I just 
at that point, I almost fell to the floor. I was like, how? Because when I looked in her eyes, all I felt was warmth and love. And so I can't imagine how anybody could look into a child's eyes and do something so horrific. I, I will never understand. There's nothing excusable about it. It's totally inexcusable. And there's no, there's no reason in the world that he should have done that. You know, as parents, I think we all have moments when you lose your patience uh, and we learn to, to cope or, you know, there's never a time when it's okay to, to hurt a child like that. And even if he was getting aggravated or anything like that, he could have made a call. He could have called a relative. He could have called Caitlin's grandmother. He said she lived right around the corner. So he could have just yeah. said, um, can you give me a hand? It, there's just no justification at all. And I only wish that he would have gotten a longer sentence. What, was his plea deal what did the, what were the arrangements of that how much time could he serve total it was 15 15 years to life with the possibility of parole um now if i would have known a lot of the information i knew now and um not per se of everything he said in that parole hearing but if i would have known exactly how the, the justice system worked and how easily 15 years could fly by, um, I would have definitely, you see, my mother, she handled a lot of the aspect and she told me that she didn't think I could handle a trial, um, the, cause of the state I was in. But, um, if I would have definitely had more knowledge, I would have definitely fought to where there was no plea deal that he couldn't have that option. But then again, I was very young and this, especially when he he made a lot of the statements in the last parole hearing is very emotionless. There was no sign of any type of remorse. And I think that scared me the most because if they were let somebody, if they let somebody out like that, and especially nowadays, um, the platform of social media, he could easily find another woman to manipulate another another family to hurt. And he did state that he sought me out basically because, and it wasn't that he sought me out to harm her. It was more that he sought me out that to, he needed to get out of his parents' house. And he saw that I was young and I had my own place. And, um, but the thing he said that he just, he wanted the relationship, but not the children involved. And he was, he said he resented Caitlin and I don't understand that. Um, I don't know if it was because her family, her, her dad and his family were very involved and very there. I don't know. That part confuses me a little. So you're doing what you can to keep him from getting paroled. Yes. Um, in less than 10 days we go and many of my family members are going and it's like a, a fight, a battle to keep this monster in prison um, so that Caitlin could have continued justice 
and not just that, to keep society safe from this predator, this this man who seeks out weak women. Um, and I don't, I, I just, I can't imagine him getting out. And I'm terrified. I'm terrified and scared to death of him getting out because I feel like I want to just save the world from this type of pain. And it's hard because I can't. Well, and I hope for your sake and everybody else's sake that he doesn't get out and he stays right where he's at. One thing in, in talking with you, and I'm always amazed by the people that I do talk to on this show that turn their pain into something positive. When you reached out to me, you mentioned that you wanted to get Caitlin's story out there in an effort to change the justice system. What kind of changes are you hoping for, and have you made any plans moving forward to achieve some of those changes? Yes, I think that um, people who do such horrific crimes, and especially those who murder children and commit senseless acts, that they should their parole rights should automatically be taken away. Not only for the rest of society to be protected from individuals like this, but for the families of the victims, and the victims should not have to relive this every time they have to go up to a parole hearing. Even if he gets a denial this time, it would basically, I would have to go back whatever many years they say. If they give him a three-year denial, I have to go through this again. And it's a never-ending battle. And no family should have to deal with that. They should be able to have to handle their grief and and to not have to relive such such a tragedy and I don't know how I want to go about that I I really don't know how I can I'm still trying to gather more information and study things and see what I could do but I really think taking these parole rights away from these these type of criminals maybe we'll send a deterrent um keep these criminals from committing these type of acts or, you know, send, it would send a message out there that, Hey, we're not going to put up with this, these type of violent acts. We're not going to let you murder our children and leave families shattered. It, It just, I feel like every time we have to go to these parole hearings, we are being punched as well. We don't get a chance. Once I feel like, okay, my life is going good, I could handle more. Um, I feel like I'm not breaking down as much and I'm handling my life good. And then, bam, I have to go through this whole process again. And it's, it's, it's not fair for us to have to deal with that and then him have a possibility of getting out. And it's not for to society either. Society is at risk for whatever may or may not happen, whatever. Um, if he decides to go, you know, to relive his criminal lifestyle. I mean, he didn't really have a criminal lifestyle back then, but obviously he has something wrong with him to where he could harm such a a defenseless baby and such a a horrible 
in a horrible way, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it makes perfect sense. And, you know, I wish you luck in, in finding a way to help make that happen because somebody that beats a two and a half month old baby to death, in my opinion, and I think a lot of people would agree, doesn't deserve to get out of prison. Certainly not after, you know, 15 years. So, you know, I wish you luck going forward with that. That brings me to one last thing. If there's someone listening, perhaps a young parent out there that's listening to this right now, and they're going through or they've recently gone through something like you went through, what advice would you give them to help them get through that grief and to move forward? It's so hard. I feel like when people, parents go through what I went through, and you almost feel very alone. You are not, you're not alone. Just concentrate on keeping your child's memory alive. Fight, fight any type of battle that you have to fight to keep your child's murderer locked away. Um, it may be hard, very hard, and going through it, you feel like you're just going through it all over again. Just keep on fighting. And then there are many of us that we feel alone, but reach out to another parent who's going through what you've been through. That's what I always say, because it's like we're in this club together that we have to band together and fight and be our child's voices because they can't they can't have a voice anymore. So we have to be their voice. And we have to protect our children from monsters that live out in this world. And even if we and then think of all the other children. Even if yours is gone, think of all the other children. We need to protect them. We have to keep these monsters locked up. We have to keep fighting. It's the only thing we could do. I think that's very good advice. And I hope if there's anybody out there that is in a similar situation that they'll listen to that and hopefully that helps them. Jessica, I just want to say I really appreciate you sharing Caitlin's story with us. She was a beautiful baby, and I'm sorry that this happened to her and to you. Thank you. I just wanted to give you a quick update. The conversation you just heard between Jessica and I took place in mid-November 2018, just over a month before this episode aired. You may have heard Jessica mention that she was about to face Kyle Lawson in court as he was trying to get out on parole. I'm happy to tell you that she bravely stood up on behalf of herself and Caitlin and objected to the idea of Kyle Lawson being paroled. The courts and parole board sided with Jessica, and Kyle Lawson was denied parole. But one day down the road, Jessica will have to go through this once again as Kyle Lawson comes up again for parole. My hope is that he's denied once again and that he remains in jail where he belongs. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Murder of My Family. As we wrap up this episode, I'd like to play previews for two true crime podcasts that you're sure to enjoy. The Nighttime Podcast and our true crime podcast. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Canada, the great white north, 
a utopia of manners, healthcare, and big-hearted people saying A. Sadly, that place doesn't exist. I'm Jordan, and on my show Nighttime, I uncover a version of Canada that is far darker than the one used in advertising to sell coffee, beer, and cars. The Canada I discuss on Nighttime is a twisted maze of crime, missing persons cases, unexplained events, and stories that prove Canada is not what they want you to think. If you want to join me, subscribe to the Nighttime Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else. Are your friends tired of hearing you talk about serial killers? While you're at a dinner party, have you randomly blurted out the odds of being murdered by a complete stranger? Does Netflix only recommend documentaries on true crime and murder? If you've answered yes to one or more of these questions, come over and sit at our friend's table. I'm Cam. And I'm Jen. And we are the co-host of our true crime podcast. And you can listen to us every Wednesday wherever you download your podcasts. See you on Wednesday. Oh, bye-bye. Love ya.